There is an inferno raging in Washington. But here in the land of 10,000 lakes, we know how to put out a fire. I am Richard Painter, and I approve of this message. Thanks for tuning into the Daily Standard Podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 15th, 2018. I'm your guest host, Jim Swift, stepping in for Charlie Sykes, who has the week off. Joining me today uh, is Chris Deaton, who is the deputy online editor of the Weekly Standard. Chris, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. And also David Byler, one of our writers and our chief elections analyst. David, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for having me. So yesterday, there was a spate of primaries. Flash question here. Did Trump have a good day with his endorsements? Um, yeah. I think that Trump had a reasonably good day with his endorsements. I think you have to look a little bit past the top lines to see uh, exactly where that happens. You know, there's there's uh, obviously the big results uh, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, the gubernatorial and the Senate results that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that we'll talk about later. But if you just look through uh, some of these House races, um, some of the races that are flying a little bit, you know, or a little bit more under the radar, you do see some positive signs that a Trump tweet or a Trump endorsement generally does help Republicans in the primary. And you can also see that in the strategies that different primary candidates are taking. Uh, For example, in the Wisconsin Senate primary, both candidates, uh, Vukmir and Nicholson, were trying to hug Trump really hard throughout the whole process. And you just saw a lot of that in general across the board. It was fun, kind of funny. I mean, at Charlie, uh, if, if you were here, I'll put on my Charlie hat for a second, uh, being a Wisconsin native and he knows both candidates. But it said in previous podcasts that both candidates, uh, both Vukmir and Johnson, Vukmir being the kind of more establishment candidate and Johnson being the guy who was endorsed by Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, uh, both of them were really critical of Trump and they've just sort of flipped. And as you said, they're, they're hugging him. So the question I have for you, David, is... Uh, Johnson was endorsed by Cruz and Lee, who used to be kind of kingmakers, right? I mean, they were the Tea Party kings of the Senate, and they would they would always weigh in. Now it's kind of been a war of attrition between the establishment and the Tea Party types. Have they lost their luster? That's a good question. I think Trump's endorsement is the one that matters the most in these situations. You know, he is the president, he is a Republican, so he's kind of the head of the party. I think when we think about establishment, uh, that word is a little bit vague. Uh, and when we think about Tea Party, that word also can be a little bit vague. So I think defining things is important here. Uh, Rukmir in Wisconsin was the establishment candidate in the sense that a lot of the state party apparatus got behind her, sort of a lot of the machinery that Scott Walker has used and built over the course of the last eight years were sort of in her camp. And then you had Nicholson sort of trying to say that uh, she was insufficiently supportive of Trump in the past and that he was uh, mounting some kind of outsider insurgency bid. Uh, And in Wisconsin, essentially, the establishment won. In that way, it was a little bit like a repeat of the 2016 presidential primary, where uh, even though uh, Trump at that time was kind of raking in delegates and was looking more and more likely to win, Wisconsin went uh, really pretty strongly for Cruz at that time. So I think it's a it's kind of a complex situation with Tea Party establishment, insider, outsider. And I think it depends on where you are. I think that if there was a state organization that was weaker than Walker's, that was, uh, you know, behind Vukmir, I, I guess you could say if this if this took place in a different state, you might have seen a different outcome. 
Nicholson was the ultimate outsider, if, I, if my understanding is correct. Wasn't he the former president of like the College Democrats? He was, uh, and he had supported Gore in 2000, uh, if I remember correctly. Some of his family members, um, this is going from memory, so I'd have to double check it, but some of his family members, I think, actually donated to Tammy Baldwin. Uh, it was really uh, part of this race, at least, was... Uh, Nicholson, part of this race was Nicholson basically taking comments that Victor Mir had made in the past about Trump and uh, saying, you know, you weren't on board early enough. You said X, Y, and Z. I think the exact quote was uh, that Trump was offensive to everyone in yeah. the past. And, you know, it, it ended up working out fine. So it's, it's just kind of another wrinkle in figuring out both what the insider outsider angle is on this. And also, what type of "quote unquote" outsiders work where, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Uh, Chris, uh, speaking of the establishment, Ned Lamont in Connecticut, explain that to me. Oh my gosh! Well, I, I kind of feel like you have to hop into a time machine and at least go back a couple of days, right? Uh, go back for a hot minute to remember Ned Lamont. Um, this was kind of party infighting before party infighting became all the hotness in both parties here in 2018. Uh, Ned Lamont, of course, challenged Joe Lieberman back in the day um, before he picked up a Senate nomination. Lieberman went, in, uh, Lieberman went independent, um, took that seat down. Now Ned Lamont, I guess, is is staging some sort of comeback bid, and uh, that's going to be that's going to be a really fascinating race because from what I understand, the Democratic governor there, Dan Malloy, is so unpopular that Lamont might not exactly tie himself um, super closely to him. And then on the other side, you're running against a Republican in a state that went against Trump by 20, 25 points. I can't remember what the exact margin in Connecticut was, but you're potentially going to have two standard bearers of the party for this high office there that are potentially going to have to run away. Um, for the people who are, or from the from the leaders of their uh, respective parties in that state, so that's uh, that's certainly a fascinating situation to me. Um, and if I can pivot to one thing too, that's that's kind of related to some of the stuff that we've been talking about here, and, and make a comment, and also key up something for David. As you said, Jim, it was a spate of primaries last night. We had you know several states that were voting. We had you know things going on in Connecticut, things going on in Kansas, things going on in Vermont. But I kind of want to narrow down on Minnesota and Wisconsin here because I'm really curious about takeaways and lessons that we can learn. I'm not sure that you can really pick up on anything from primary season that has a whole lot of insight for how Trumpism is going to be doing two years from now. Especially in Connecticut or Vermont. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's why narrowing in on on Wisconsin and Minnesota, I'm kind of curious, David, for your thoughts on this, that we are looking and we just being kind of, you know, the the political analysis establishment here of trying to figure out what direction the country is headed. Wisconsin and Minnesota kind of represent this new center of what a new Republican Party, at least in the short term, might look like to be able to carry Trumpism to electoral health. So naturally, it's going to be important to take away some signs for the Trumpist people that, hey, candidates who are representing this type of attitude, this type of platform are doing well in elections. And that includes at the primary level. They are the ones who are winning these nominations and kind of taking the Trumpist attitude on to the general. Based on what happened last night, David, what's your takeaway from that? Do you think that Trumpism is still ascendant and in good shape in states like Minnesota and Wisconsin? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's interesting because Minnesota and Wisconsin kind of have signals pointing in different directions. So in Minnesota's gubernatorial contest, which you mentioned, which I think was kind of the uh, shocker of the night, uh, Tim Pawlenty, the uh, former governor there, who was elected twice, he's a Republican, uh, lost his lost the primary to for a third time try to become governor uh, to Jeff Johnson, uh, another Republican candidate who he's a county official in Hennepin, which is uh, part of Minneapolis. But essentially, the story there is that Tim Pawlenty, who by all rights should have won, he's a former governor of the state. You'd think he'd be able to win a gubernatorial primary. Uh, didn't. And you can chalk that up to a couple different things. You can talk about how Plenty is, you know, a little bit of a wooden campaigner. He's not the most exciting candidate, but he's also sort of a Republican from a different era. He served from 2003 to 2011, if I remember correctly. He became a lobbyist after that. He had uh, some pretty tough words for Trump during the Republican primary in 2016. And that whole style that's a little bit more Jeb and a little bit less Trump, I think, didn't end up working out for him. So you have that sort of dynamic going on in Minnesota. And you got a little bit of a different thing that we already talked about in Wisconsin, where the state party did prevail and a candidate who had said some negative things about Trump in the past did end up winning against uh, sort of an outsider-ish challenge. So I, I think, I don't know about the usage of the word ascendant for the Trump wing of the party, and maybe you guys have different opinions than I do on this, but I, I guess I would say is that the Trump wing is kind of the, maybe the stronger wing of all the wings in the party at this moment. I mean, President Trump is obviously from the Trump wing, but I don't think that the other wings are gone or just powerless or ineffective. I, I do think there's still sort of infighting that is working itself out, stuff that started before the 2016 primary and hasn't it, it's like it's like a fast food commercial, right? Right. It's price and participate. Uh, price and participation may vary. Uh, the price, of course, being your political soul. But you know, the participation varies from in wing to wing, from region to region. Sticking with uh, Wisconsin, we had uh, a primary for uh, Paul Ryan's seat in Wisconsin. One on the Democratic side, uh, Randy Bryce, the Iron Stash, who had raised a boatload of money and had lost a primary, I believe, the last time around, ended up winning. And on the, on the Republican side, we had Paul Nellen, who is a He uh, lost and got 11% of the vote to Brian Stile. What do we think of Brian? I know the Senate seat, uh, excuse me, swing seat only does uh, Senate elections. But uh, do we think Brian Stile has a good chance? It's, it's, not, it's not a terribly super conservative district. Am I, am I wrong there? You're not wrong. Um, the numbers, if I'm remembering them correctly, are that Trump won it by about 10-ish points in 2016, and Romney won it by about four points in 2012. So that's uh, in this kind of Democratic environment where, you know, Democrats are leading by six to eight points, depending on, you know, the week in the generic ballot, uh, when it's an open contest. That kind of a seat is, I think, in play. It's important to look at the candidates, too. Like you said, Republicans got their preferred candidate. They managed to uh, make sure that Paul Nellen lost hugely, um, which is a really good thing for Republicans in that district. And uh, on the Democratic side, like you said, Iron Stash has kind of a viral online presence. He 
uh, has raised a ton of money. He's Sanders endorsed, but he's also had a few uh, sort of negative things about his past come out. He's been arrested a few times. At one time, he was late in paying some child support. Um, you can read more about sort of what happened in the past and, um, you know, Bryce's various responses to that. And this this one, I guess what I'm saying is that it has the potential to get ugly and have candidate-specific things that matter, uh, as well as sort of national forces at play. I think that's a really good point, David, of you bringing up about this being a house race that potentially could get nasty, because Bryce was one of the really, really got really early guys in this particular election cycle that Democrats were rallying behind as somebody to overthrow the establishment precisely because this is Paul Ryan's district. I mean, of course, Ryan didn't announce that he was going to step down from the House until way, way after Bryce had already announced. And Bryce had kind of teed up is his campaign as being against Paul Ryan and being against what Paul Ryan represents and whatever ties he has to Trumpism. So there kind of has to be, I'm sure, some sort of reorientation um, on the part of him for his campaign. But I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly. He has had a $6.3 million fundraising haul so far, and he's burned through a lot of that. But these numbers that we're talking about for House districts are just absolutely extraordinary how much money is being raised. And to your point, David, I think a lot of that goes toward running viral campaigns and campaigns that kind of go beyond just what is happening in and around Janesville. I mean, so many of these House races, I think Democrats are trying to put um, stakes to them that are much, much bigger than just what's going on district by district across the country. Every one of these seats, whether it's a special election down here in the Georgia 6th, where I am, between Karen Handel and John Ossoff several months ago, or something like what's going on with Randy Bryce right now, all of these things are taking outsized influence. The money is just staggering for what it is. Uh, I think one of the biggest losers in Wisconsin, a number of losers, which I'm I'm, I'm particularly happy about, are Breitbart.com. Uh, they were big backers of Paul Nellen. They kind of backed off on that. They were also big backers of Kevin Nicholson. Uh, so was Ann Coulter, and so was uh, Michelle Malkin. The good guys won there. Trivia question for you guys. How do you maintain an iron stash? Uh-oh, stumped. I don't know. You brush it with a steel brush. Speaking of brushing, <laughs> speaking of brushing, we're going to go to our normal host, Charlie Sykes, for an ad from today's sponsor, Quip. The Daily uh, Standard Podcast is brought to you today by Quip. Look, the truth is that uh, most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and we forget to change our brushes on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different? Well, for starters, Quip's an electric toothbrush that is a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes. And I can I can attest to this, you know, coming here to Washington, uh, D.C. from Wisconsin, I, I don't want to pack uh, my big heavy one, so the, the Quip toothbrush is perfect. Um, Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist recommended two minutes. You do it for two minutes, right? Um, with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just for your convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. And they also come with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel when, wherever you might take your teeth, which I'm assuming is pretty much uh, everywhere. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com standard right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric 
electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard. That is spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, now that we're back, I want to talk about some of the lesser followed, uh, at least by uh, normal Americans, probably more followed by Twitter obsessed people like the three of us. Uh, Richard Painter got shellacked. You followed that at all, David, yesterday? Yeah, and I wasn't hugely surprised by that result. Painter lost by a really significant margin. 7613, uh, right? Yep, 76.1% for Smith, 13.7% for Painter. Smith had been appointed to the seat uh, to replace Al Franken, who resigned uh, after a, you know, a whole uh, sexual misconduct uh, thing that happened. can't remember if that was earlier this year or last year. This, this result was about what I had expected. Painter uh, only posted 14% of the vote in the count with all the precincts reporting. Smith, the incumbent senator who was appointed to replace Al Franken, who uh, resigned in disgrace, uh, I think it was earlier this year or last year, uh, she got 76.1% of the vote. Uh, this race is probably not going to be competitive. There's an Emerson poll that has Smith up four points over the Republican, but a previous poll that had her up by a lot more. And you just expect in this national environment with sort of an appointed incumbent in a swing state, you wouldn't expect a very competitive race. So for now, I'm kind of thinking that, you know, Painter might be the last uh, sort of interesting event we see out of the Minnesota Senate special. I'm going to pivot here to my favorite, and I share with Dave Weigel, who I'm going to quote here in a second, uh, favorite candidate of yesterday's primary was in Vermont, and it was a guy named H. Brooke Page, who's this Republican activist uh, in Vermont who's just kind of pissed that the Republican Party is, um, I don't know, rudderless and really doesn't have any 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 grip in Vermont. So he decided that rather than – and apparently in Vermont um, – People who don't want to run in the primary will, uh, you know, have people try and write them in in the Republican slots. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, the Northeast is, it's weird. H. Brooke Prage didn't want Democrats taking these primaries uh, by write-in, so he ran for, and I'm quoting Dave Weigel here, deep breath, state auditor, state treasurer, secretary of state, attorney general, U.S. House, and U.S. Senate. And apparently he won five and potentially maybe six. I, I, I at, at the time of the podcast, I, I think there was maybe one he might not have won. But the guy's running for six offices at once. I'm not even sure how you can do that, but it's amazing. So, H. Brooke Page, you are today's Daily Standard podcast hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris, uh, let's let's speaking of elections, let's 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 look past the midterms and Michael Avenatti. He's been spending some time in Iowa. What do you make of that? Oh boy. Well, I I think all upon it over at Hot Air uh, actually kind of had this one nailed. You know, we can we can laugh at the celebrity attorney, um, part time race car driver who is out there uh, cutting little five-second clips of himself walking into a cornfield. I don't know if you guys saw that on Twitter, but, you know, giving almost kind of a field of dreams aura to this quixotic would-be Democratic 2020 candidate and laugh about all of it. But we can't laugh about anything anymore, man. I don't know. Uh, this guy seems to be taking himself incredibly seriously. Uh, he's been in Iowa. I know that he did an interview with John Carl a few days ago that I actually haven't seen any clips of, but seemed to... Uh, have been taken very seriously, but the latest development with him is that he 
released what could be described as a platform, I guess, on Twitter. Um, it's entitled What I Believe. It looks like it was maybe written on an iPad mid-flight and uploaded with haste. Um, but he kind of outlines 11 or 12 uh, particular issues and uh, where he stands on them. And a lot of it is particular Democratic fair. But there's one kind of funny one that I want to highlight, and it is trade. And he says that, quoting here, I believe we need to be aggressive in dealing with countries that have gamed the system, M-dash, but smart about how we fight back to avoid inflicting unnecessary harm on American workers and farmers. Hearing those words from somebody who ostensibly represents some sort of pugnacious uh, left wing of the Democratic Party when the lineage of that party on trade as recently as the 1980s represented by the likes of Dick Gephardt was to throw caution the wind when it comes to potentially instigating trade wars is just absolutely hilarious. I mean, there's no way that this guy has thought about the ramifications of trade policy for longer than 45 minutes. So, you know, you and I were talking offline a little bit, Jim, about these celebrity candidacies and how sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. But the thing is, is that they really never succeeded prior to this century. So I'm not sure that we can dismiss Michael Avenatti so quickly. Uh, it's kind of hilarious that he's doing this so early in the campaign cycle. I mean, we're not even to the midterms yet. And who knows whether or not this guy seriously dips his toe in the water when it comes time to when the, uh, I don't know how many, 36,000 Democrats maybe are going to be running for the presidency here in a couple of years. So maybe he uh, ends up being one of them. But it's something funny, if nothing else. Someone who worked on trade policy, I, I love his unicorn trade policy. We're going to hold him accountable, but you know we got to be careful about these externalities, lest they screw right. over farmers. How, how the hell do you do that? I mean, it's it's it, there's... <laughs> There's not really a way to do it. I want to quote here from a story I read in NBC News about his trip to Iowa. And Avenatti, I should note, is a St. Louis guy. He briefly attended the same college as me, St. Louis University, and before transferring to ostensibly someplace better. This caucus goer in Iowa, Mary Pat Cole, I doubt you're a Weekly Standard podcast listener, but if you are, I'm going to blame you if this guy becomes president in 2020. Because listen to this noise. Quote, ordinarily, a Joe Biden type of person would have been my candidate. But what he said tonight was exactly what I thought before I came, said Mary Pat Cole, who attended the dinner. We do need a fighter, and he could stand up to Trump. Basically, there you go. basically this is I, I, I'm worried that this is, you know, the, the, the meatball on top of Mount Spaghetti that's going to roll down and grow bigger and bigger and bigger because he fights. That's partially how we got Trump, right? Avenatti did say something on Twitter, I think. I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I... I He's not wrong, and I'm just ashamed that he's kind of right, basically saying that the 2020 race isn't going to be about issues. It's going to be about personalities. Well, I wish that weren't the case. Do you guys disagree? I, I think I think he's probably right. Oh, I, yeah, I, I think he's dead on there. Um, I, that is just kind of acknowledging uh, what everybody already knows, right? I mean, nobody formalizes it. We like to pretend that some of this stuff is about issues, but uh, Bob Costa from the Washington Post had a thoughtful thread about this related to Tim Pawlenty, actually. And, you know, I think we, not to get too off course here, but I think we do have to be a little careful about evaluating Tim Pawlenty's uh, fate in, in that primary last night, because he ended his presidential campaign and he went to the financial services roundtable, right? I mean, it's not like he's been back, uh, you know, barnstorming at Iowa Farms, preparing for this office uh, from the second that 
he got out of the presidential race uh, back in 2012. Um, I just I just don't understand why you leave a three million dollar a year job to be governor. I mean, I get it. The pension's probably really good, but you're not going to sure. be president. He, he's he's got the no offense to Jim Talent, who is a great senator, but he was a terrible campaigner. And so is Teapaw. I mean, he, he's he's about electric as an ear of corn. Right. And, and, the, and that was kind of Costa's point that, look, you have to remember that so much of, you know, Tim Pawlenty can kind of be this blue-collar type of conservative, the Sam's Club type of Republican, but ultimately really kind of have to remember it's not just about the platform. A lot of it is about the attitude, and I think that you kind of, in this person that you quoted uh, who was at Avenatti's event in, in Iowa saying, you know what, but he fights, that logic I think is is, is permeating uh, every pocket of ideology in American politics right now, and is is very it's, the proof is in the pudding. It's very obviously a deciding factor. It, it's interesting you mentioned that every pocket of ideology. I mean, I remember was it David Brooks? I mean, we we ran with the Sam's Club Republican stuff here at the Weekly Standard back when the three of us were in grade school. But Sam's Club is in trouble. I, I think now it's the Amazon Prime Republican, right? I mean, there's you know, it's mm-hmm. you can get you can get a little bit of whatever you want. It's it's not just going mm-hmm. and buying bulk and saving money. Last question here for you, Chris, or for you, David. If, feel free to jump in either of you. Uh, Boston Globe's coming out with an uh, leading the way tomorrow an editorial about press freedom that a number of newspapers around the country are going to run it or some variant thereof. Some people are trying to draw distinctions between that and Sinclair Broadcasting. Um, I think that's sort of off base. What do you guys think? My only opinion on this is, I don't know. I I oftentimes don't really follow as closely this sort of thing where, you know, a bunch of newspapers run an editorial at the same time, so on and so forth. I just, I think the best thing that journalists and journalism can generally do is do its job well, uh, do a good job in reporting and commentary and analysis and all that sort of stuff. And I kind of... I don't know. I, I don't know if that's that's bad of me or something like that. I usually just let this sort of thing pass me by. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. And a lot of people, Chris, and I'll throw this to you, are are are, are mad about this and they're saying this is collusion. Look at the press colluding. Mm. But it seems to me that this is something that is a narrative that probably only is accepted by people who already generally dislike media in the first place. Am I wrong? No, I, I think you're probably right about that. I mean, Jack Schaefer had a thoughtful piece up at uh, Political Magazine about this when, you know, he was talking about people kind of already being entrenched in their groupthink. And um, that applies to people who are skeptical of the media. I think it also applies to people who run these editorial pages when it comes to things like this. I mean, look, we all we all live in our own distinct bubbles here. And of course, it's not wrong to stick up for press freedom. I mean, my goodness, the things that the president has said uh, in the last few years since Trumpism has been ascendant and some of the things that he's put uh, reporters through and some of the things that he said are just absolutely, I mean, I mean obnoxious is kind of the base word to work off of. Um, and, and there are certain instances where you could probably pinpoint and say, yeah, that brooch is on dangerous. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's stuff that's unnecessary and is completely uncalled for. Uh, and I really don't think that any right-thinking person could deny that. But when it comes to making these big grand gestures of, you know, standing up for press freedom and we're going to have, you know, 200 some odd newspapers, I think, from around the country, ranging from the size of the Boston Globe, I believe I saw in an Associated Press story, down to community papers in towns of as few as four or 5,000 people, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it depends on where you live. You know, if you're in a 
uh, a, a media skeptic pocket of the country, then you're going to read that editorial in your local newspaper and think it's garbage. And if you are living in metropolitan Boston, where uh, Donald Trump's approval rating is negative 113 percent, then you are going to think that the editorial is fantastic and raw rot. So, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure what in substance shows of solidarity like this uh, really accomplish in terms of moving the needle outside of just reminding people that this is where we stand. If they really wanted to make a difference, they would probably just come up with a hashtag because we all know that that's what's really important is hashtags. <laughs> uh, well, gentlemen, I uh, appreciate you joining me. We will be doing this tomorrow. It'll be the last podcast of the week, and we thank you for listening. <laughs>